are listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast is about uh, accidents, incidents, and mishaps. <laughs> I love it. I'm trying to remember the rest. <laughs> and you always say tube, 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 tube. <laughs> Tube. You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Sir, are your pants meowing? Yeah, you interested? Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off. Had an accident. Got his tree. And went night-night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20, 10. Clear of conflict. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. I thought we were recording a podcast. Huh? I thought we were recording a podcast, not an album. We are. We're recording a podcast. So what was that all about? This episode put me in mind of of that song, Take Me Home Country Road by John Denver, who also died in a plane crash. Oh, okay. But it's not about him. Is he from Denver? Uh, Denver's probably not his real last name. I don't really know. I know that he died in a plane crash, though, Were back you... in the early 90s. Okay. But that's not what this is about. Were you named after the Shenandoah? Was it river or mountain? Well, Shenandoah is a river, but also a national park. No, I wasn't named after that. Uh, okay. My parents were just hippies, so they just named me Shannon. Got it. You can hear my T on the microphone, I'm pretty sure. I was going to say, I'm like, this is your... Uh, Testing fate with that stirring. Exactly. You got to stir around good chai tea, though, because it's got all the bits. So are you excited for today? I am very excited to to be on Inside the Aluminum Tube with Shannon Baker, a podcast about accidents, incidents, and mishaps. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty good one. Thank you. All right. So I just listened to it the other day, actually. I... um, Recently moved, and I've been, I had finished unpacking finally. So it was getting me, this, your podcast was getting me through that whole process. Oh, good. Did you cry? When I, when I got the keys, yes. Oh, oh, I thought you, I thought you were like, listen to episode 32. That's what I meant, but it's okay. I didn't cry. No. Um, (laughs) I cried a little. I was definitely sad, but I think episode three or four was the one that always makes me really cry episode four the one over new york that's a tough one too it's uh, really tough all right well let me read the intro okay and then we'll get back to you you go for it okay welcome back to inside the aluminum tube which is the aviation history podcast together with my co-host who is not an aviation expert we look at events in aviation history like air disasters accidents incidents mere mishaps and like today The Occasional Mystery. Aviation history is worth remembering, and often the history goes back a lot farther than you may think. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host. I'm the creator. If you want to see pictures of the events we talk about and enhance your experience, and in this case, you definitely will, you should follow me on Instagram, at AluminumTube. You can email me... Goodness. You can... Woo, fast. (laughs) You can email me your ideas at AluminumTubePodcast at gmail.com, 
or you can go to aluminumtubepodcast.com or altubepodcast.com where you can join my Patreon, tip me, get decals, meet the co-hosts, and listen to episodes. And I say it every time, but that Instagram brings a whole nother level of... It makes it, doesn't it? ...interaction to the podcast, yes. I'd love for each of my listeners to please take a second to drop me a rating or a review mm-hmm. wherever you listen. It that, means a lot. It helps the podcast grow. It helps people recognize it. And I mean, write your true reviews. And because I use that to like improve my show too. Also, if you want to support and you maybe can't support in a financial way, which I know is tough for a lot of people, just downloading podcast means a lot because it's a lot, shows a lot more consistent interaction with the podcast. So downloading, commenting, and rating are all really good. And you see the download numbers. I see the download numbers. And and also just telling your friends about it. And that's really how podcasts grow. So anyway, if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave me a review, a rating, you know, join my Patreon. That that would be awesome. And it's just $3 a month. So it's not like it's a big deal. I uh, was working on a movie recently and I was I was on set for the whole production instead of a day or two. They were set decorating a bathroom and I had a bunch of your podcast stickers because I give them out whenever I can on set because we li- we like to listen to podcasts because we're all entertainment people. A yeah. lot of us do. Mm-hmm. And the director said, I need a sticker right here. And I said, I have a sticker. And so hopefully your sticker's going to be in this movie that I worked on. Oh, cool. In the background. So as my listeners know, I have a returning co-host and the, and the most prolific co-host of this show, hey. Mary Hall. So you mentioned working on a movie, but you were you got credits in a movie recently. I did. If you like horror, I know it's spooky season right now. I just had my tailoring debut for film, the movie that came out called Smile. I know you've seen it. What it you, was good. It's, it's not like cheap, jump, scary good. It's like very horror, entertaining, creepy, a little bit of gore, but nothing too crazy. It, and there's clothes on the screen that I personally worked on and it just felt so cool to to see, see it on those. the big screen, yeah. Yeah, to like kind of see what you had been working toward. That's pretty cool. Yeah, because we did this movie a year ago, and so I'd actually forgotten a lot of what happened. So I, I was like fully engaged and just eating popcorn, staring at the screen the whole time. Yeah, it was good. I mean, I liked it too. I mean, I know you had like personal relationship with the film, but I thought it was really good. Good. And it was number one in the box offices last weekend, so... If you need a new spooky story, you should go check it out. Cool. What else have you been up to? Well, after Any, the, anything the movie that I put your sticker in, I have been taking some time off getting my apartment together, like I mentioned. I, we did a trip to Vegas because I've never been before, and we had the awesome opportunity from one of your listeners, actually, mm-hmm. Steve, right? Who, yep. shout out Steve, he let us come and fly some gliders in Vegas, and that was very cool. Which was a totally new experience for me. Yeah. I've never done that. That It was really different. It was very sort of different than flying a, an airplane, a regular airplane. Right, and it's the first anything in the air that I've flown. And the guy that was flying with us, uh, he's, I think it was Terry. 
Really nice guy. Has a lot of information, shows you what's around you. But he said, I, I did a very good job. I'm, I'm Maybe I'm a pilot in the making. So awesome first intro to like something with wings. Yes. It was a little different for me because I have such a strong relationship with uh, having an engine in an airplane. So it was... Um, Not having one was a little scary. <laughs> it made me a little nervous. The um, the tow plane being towed up was a, was a, a little more nerve-wracking to me because I'm not mm-hmm. used to being that close to another airplane. Right. So that was interesting. Normally then, alerts go off if you are. <laughs> right, exactly. And then unfortunately, it just wasn't a very good lift day. So we kind of just had a just a kind of a sled ride down but it was still it was still really awesome and a lot of fun it was so. very awesome and i it was a club that he's a part of the las vegas soaring club thank you so if you are in vegas and you want to like do an interesting activity it's about a 25 minute drive out we also saw the grand canyon from a plane a uh, caravan grand caravan that and was fun it was a lot of fun and i've never been in a, a not commercial airplane so that plane, it so had about firsts. eight or 10 seats. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. 12, maybe including the two in the front, the yeah. cockpit. Mm-hmm. So go follow the Instagram else? to find out if we posted it. Nothing crazy. You already said you finished your move into a new into a new house in Brooklyn. Yes. Yep. Took out the last box to recycling literally this last week. My cats are thriving. Your mom's coming for a visit. My mom is coming for a visit and my cousin... Uh, so maybe I'll have to get them to download this episode for the plane ride. Tomorrow's Indigenous Peoples Day. Yes. And let me tell you, I have something very special for you today. A little like special recognition for Indigenous Peoples. You I also have said a, mystery. A little, which I a little love. bit of Halloween. <gasps> a little Spooky. mystery. I got something interesting for you today. So, I love Halloween. I love spooky. I love mystery. Like I said in the intro, aviation history sometimes starts a long time before you think it would start. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, let's see if you make the connection this time. You may or may not. We'll see what happens. So let's start with the date. Are you ready? I am so ready. Okay, here's the date, 1720s. And remind me again, what date was aviation first? Really not till the ni- 1900 or so. I thought so. I was just like, wow, we're really like 200 years off. They had hot air balloons in the okay. 1800s. So we, we have been... Pr- the only time you would have mentioned that is in your episode about the Mile High Club. Right. Because I know that's where it started. Exactly. That's so this right. is further back than we've ever been before. 1720s. Cornstalk of the Shawnee tribe was born, most okay. likely in Pennsylvania. That's where we are right now. Cornstalk was either the son or the grandson of the Shawnee chief Paxinosa. And Paxinosa was known to be friendly to the British. But over I'm the- not... Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Over the next 40 years, Cornstalk and the Shawnee were pushed west by the settlers to the Ohio country, and they settled in the area of southeastern Ohio, southwestern Pennsylvania, and northern West Virginia. Hence the song, West Virginia. There you go. As the British colonies expanded, both Virginia and Pennsylvania claimed the Ohio country and formed distinctive, in air quotes, policy toward the Native American hab- inhabitants. Those distinctive policies mostly involved displacing the natives, stealing from them, and often murdering them. See, this is why I kind of paused when you were like, they are nice to the British, and I wanted to be like, no, don't be nice to them, they're buttholes. No, they are definitely, the British were never really nice to anybody. No, but, but anyway. they should have been, not because it's just because you should be nice to people, but because they, the Shawnee were being so nice 
them to right. the British. Right, right. The French also maintained a presence in the area until the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763, and their policy toward the natives was to use them as pawns to battle the British by proxy. So the French were using the Shawnee and the other tribes as pawns to battle yeah. the British, mm -hmm. much in the way the United States is using the Ukraine to battle Russia. So the French traded with them uh, and helped them defend their land, and in turn, French land, by giving them right. supplies like horses and arms. So there are unconfirmed accounts that as a young warrior, Cornstalk led raids into the Virginia frontier on behalf of the French and was also said to have led several attacks on settlers in the Greenbrier, West Virginia area. Earliest documented reference to Cornstalk is in the record of the Peace Conference in November 1764, at which Henry Bouquet, a British colonel, imprisoned him and five other hostages at Fort Pitt to ensure the tribe's cooperation by using him as a bargaining chip. Well, mm. being the warrior that he was, Chief Cornstalk escaped. Oh, now he's chief at this well, point. He's, we don't know exactly when he becomes chief, but okay. he does transition from warrior Cornstalk to, to chief. chief Cornstalk. Is there any record of his age? Uh, well, he was born in the 1720s. That's what I was I was going to say. It's like, so he's like so in he's his like 40s? 40, yeah, he's like around 40. Nice. Yeah. Well, he was a good warrior and he escaped. Knowing that he couldn't fight the onslaught of the settlers, he became a powerful advocate of peaceful relations between native populations and the English and the French colonists. Okay. Uh, so 10 years later, in April 1774, I promise we're going somewhere. No, I'm interested. So 10 years later, in April of 1774, the Virginia governor called out his militia to defend some frontier settlements against Native American attacks. However, in typical English fashion, it raised the tensions among even the friendly natives and settlers. White settlers slaughtered a group of peaceful Mingos, including women and children, at Yellow Creek. Well, this made the previously friendly Mingos really fucking mad. Understandably. Uh-huh. And they said that they were going to avenge the deaths of their- Their the, family members. Their family members, right. Well, Chief Cornstalk stepped in and cooled things off, and he sent word to the governor that and he's things- he's probably in his 50s at this point. He, yeah. No, he's around... You said uh, it was the 1770-something now? Yeah. So he's 50. Yeah, you're right. He's in his 50s. But he steps in and he says things are under control. His Shawnee warriors and the Mingos would continually pressure him to fight. Yeah. But Chief Cornstalk was committed to peace. During this time he of- Sounds like a good guy. Well, he know, he's outgunned too. That I was he, thinking he that as outgunned. well. It's like we'd rather have peace than lose some of our tribe and our loved ones. So during this time of increased tensions and to show the colonists that he meant to maintain peace, he sent three of his Shawnee warriors, one of them was his brother, a warrior named Silverheels, to escort some British traders- out of harm's way and through native territory so that they could get to Pittsburgh. You said silver heels and I'm just imagining like, you know, the <laughs> heels that are like all metal in on the just the heel part, like the most fabulous shoes. Sorry, you could totally cut that out. It oh, no, no, like, I think what? I'm going to keep that in there. Yes. Well, the guy... Yes, silver heels, sorry. Silver heels, right. So the I guy... I know how he got that name, I guess. I don't know how he got it. I, I didn't figure you did. I was just like... I'd like, I wonder where like that would know. come from. Is he like super fast? Is he valuable? Does he did he well, find he, silver? He is Chief Cornstalk's brother. Yes, but you give one of your siblings, so one of your children, a uh, cornstalk, and the other silver heels. 
It's their little favoritism. I'm not sure how um, the although native, corn that, I'm is not very sure valuable. The, right, I'm not it sure how the natives would have food. named their children, whether it was That's, through action or sorry. Okay. Go well, ahead. anyway, let's continue. Go ahead. Well, the guy who ran Fort Pitt, and he's a settler. He thought that the escorts, the native escorts, intended to murder the traders. So he sent some men in pursuit of the three warriors and the traders that were being escorted. Right. Well, the guys who were in pursuit of Silver Heels and the group of, like, good guys, basically, that were escorting these traders, they shot and wounded Silver Heels. Mm. And that really pissed off Chief Cornstalk now. Right. They were just trying to do something to show extend that, a hand of kindness. Correct. Yes. And it, the English weren't having any of it. Of course not. Well, at this time, I wouldn't say the English. I would say the colonists. Right. Right. So Chief Cornstalk's scouts reported that the Virginia militia was forming an army. So under Chief Cornstalk, the Shawnee warriors prepared for war, and the colonists also amassed a force in Pittsburgh. Right. Then the colonists marched south toward native territory in West Virginia. They burned all the villages, the native villages, and they killed lots of indigenous people as they moved, as they went. Chief Cornstalk found out about that. And then on October 10th of 1774, a thousand men, colonist militia, mm-hmm. encountered 1,200 native warriors from the Shawnee, the Mingo, the Wyandotte, the Delaware. So they all got awesome. together. And they encountered them at the mouth of the Kanawha River. I said awesome. I mean, like, not that these two people are about to fight. That I think is awesome. It's the the fact that native tribes, because I know some of them didn't love, enjoy each other, but they would band together to fight the greater cause. Well, the force of a thousand colonist militia met 1,200 native warriors at the mouth of the uh, Kanawha River on the site of what is today Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Okay. feel like I'm on the podcast The Dollop and not inside the aluminum tube right now. (laughs) Also a great podcast. Heavy fighting ensued, and both sides took heavy casualties. Several witnesses escaped and told the colonists that Chief Cornstalk had directed the defense, which was true. Right. However, the better armed colonists prevailed, and the native forces retreated and they hid in a nearby marsh. But I mean, if you were a chief or a person in charge of a group of people where these other group of people were just running through your land and your people's towns and slaughtering, burning things to the ground, and it doesn't seem like they were necessarily being like, oh, we're just going to take your men because that's who could fight. It was just everyone in their wake. You would come out of defense as well. Oh, absolutely. And Chief Cornstalk was just pushed into a corner, essentially. Exactly. In a last-ditch effort to prevent an all-out war, Chief Cornstalk went to the Virginia governor and asked for a peace treaty to protect all the native villages. Although his warriors and the warriors of other tribes wanted to continue to fight, Chief Cornstalk, knowing the tribes were not as well-equipped as the colonists, told them, quote, What shall we do now? The big knife is coming on us and we shall all be killed. Mm. Now we must fight, or we are done? Then let us kill all of our women and children, and go fight until we die. Mm. I shall go and make peace. See, that just kind of makes me like tear up a little bit. He's like, what do you want us to do? Just like, there's no end that's going to be good unless we make peace. He knows. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and he was basically being like, well, if we just kill our women and children, at least they won't suffer. Exactly, that's what he's saying. 
So Cornstalk goes and he strikes a deal with the Virginia governor. They agree to a number of terms. Later that month, the Shawnee returned some white prisoners and property. They gave hunting rights for Kentucky, for mm-hmm. the area of Kentucky, in return for safety for native villages and a ceasefire. Awesome. So he thinks that he has done a good job. Yeah. But... You know, we know ultimately how things turn out. Right. It didn't last. So in the spirit of neutrality, Chief Cornstalk and Chief Red Hawk from the Delaware uh, tribe, yeah, they approached Fort Randolph at Point Pleasant, West Virginia, on October 10th, 1777. Okay. They had a message and a warning. The Revolutionary War was fast approaching, and many of the other tribes had begun to support the British, who were fighting against the independence of the colonies. Right, because the colony, the colonists are the people who are killing their families. Right. So, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly. That saying? Yep. The native tribes had hoped that if the English continued to control the colonies, that the king would stop the colonization of the Western territories. And and West Virginia at this point is a Western territory. Right. Was there any um, credence to that thought? We don't know because the British lost the war, right? right? So I... But I'm just curious where that thought came from. They were hoping that they could appeal to the king and get the king to stop the... the, Right, because... The slaughter, essentially, of the natives. It's more just like a free-for-all at the moment. So Chief Cornstalk had until this point refused to take sides. He really wanted to remain neutral. But like we said, he kind of sees that he needs to support any cause that's going to protect his tribes and his families. Absolutely. So he told the colonists at the fort that the Shawnee, quote, must now run with the stream, meaning that he was going to support the Brits as the other tribes were doing. Right. I think slightly off topic, but I just think it's so interesting and cool that we have quotes from this time. He did write letters, Mm -hmm. and that's how we know. Oh, okay. So in an attempt to blackmail the Shawnee back into neutrality, Captain Arbuckle of the colonist army took Chief Cornstalk and his companions hostage. and And he held them. By all accounts, though, Chief Cornstalk was treated well. And even began helping the colonists. Again, he's just trying to find a way out. And he's making maps and he's helping them develop strategies to defeat the approaching Brits. Mm -hmm. He's trying to do his very best to help the native tribes. I mean, that's all he's doing. I feel like he sees... Yeah, he cares about his people. Right. I mean, like we said, he sees the impending doom that was coming from the white colonization. And he's just trying to do whatever he can to stop the slaughter of his people. On November 10th of 1777, while Chief Cornstalk's son... Alanawiska was visiting the fort to help negotiate his release. Mm -hmm. A group of non-peaceful natives shot and killed a soldier nearby the fort. A vengeful mob of colonists quickly formed. And despite Captain Arbuckle's orders, the men stormed Cornstalk's cabin. As the soldiers burst through the door, Cornstalk rose to meet them and he stood facing the soldiers. Yeah. Legend has it that he was so imposing that they paused in their attack for a moment, but it wasn't enough. What a guy. Like, that's an incredible statement. The soldiers opened fire. Chief Red Hawk... Even though they're unarmed, their governor at the time said, or whoever it was, said... The captain, yeah. Captain, don't do this. You said it was a different tribe of people that he wasn't even connected to. Correct. They just wanted to kill whoever was easiest. Correct. Or would send the biggest message. Yes. So the soldiers opened fire. Chief Red Hawk tried to escape up the chimney. 
but he was pulled back down and slaughtered. Alana Wisco was shot where he had been sitting on a stool, and the other native leader was strangled to death. Chief Cornstalk was shot eight times before he fell. Wow. Just like an incredible person and awe-inspiring and just yeah, kind, almost like mythological. Yeah, and he's, his he's recognized stance. as one of the greatest native leaders in U.S. history. I can see why. I hate that he had to come to this end. So we really can't know what his last words were. But as the legend goes, just before he died... Chief Cornstalk uttered his last words, and what has become known as the curse of Cornstalk was born. Hmm. Now you're kind of like, I was like, this is sad, but a truth that needs to be told and recognized so that we can understand other people's pain and history. I mean, it's important history to know. I know, but like, I was like, where's the mystery? Where's the aviation? Well, we're getting to Where's the, the spooky? We're getting to the aviation and the spooky. Are you ready for the curse? You, as soon as you said that curse, I was like, okay, here we go. Here we go. Quote, I was the border man's friend. Many times I saved him and his people from harm. I never warred with you, but only to protect our wigwams and land. I refused to join your pale face armies with the redcoats. I came to the fort as your friend and you murdered me. You have murdered by my side my young son. For this, may the curse of the great spirit rest upon this land. May it be blighted by nature. May it even be blighted by its hopes. May the strength of its people be paralyzed by the stain of our blood. Just very powerful. And more than they deserved all that. Plus, um, Oh, definitely. The bodies of the other natives, including his son, were taken and dumped in the Kanawha River. Mm. But Chief Cornstalk's corpse was buried near the fort on Point Pleasant, Hmm. overlooking the junction of the Kanawha and Ohio River. Here he remained for many years. Do you know why they buried him? I don't know why they buried him and, and not the others. In 1794, the town of Point Pleasant was established near the site of that old fort. Chief Cornstalk's grave lay undisturbed, But in 1840, his bones were removed to the grounds of the Mason County Courthouse, where in 1899, a monument was erected in Chief Cornstalk's memory. But this is not the only monument dedicated to this period in Point Pleasant. Standing 86 feet tall, another monument was dedicated in August of 1909. Mm -hmm. I mean, a monument is something, but it's like nothing compared to the tragedy that that these people went through, like reparations should be what is happening. A statue is a good remembrance of what happened, but people might walk by that and never know the story behind it. But here's the problem with that. A plaque was set first before the monument. Okay. And here's what the plaque says. Okay. Here on October 10th, 1774, General Andrew Lewis and a thousand Virginia riflemen defeated the federated Indian tribes led by Cornstalk, known as the first battle of the revolution. It was the most important battle between Indians and whites. That's what it reads. Hmm. That's not ideal. No. To, to say the least. Well, to start with, it's factually inaccurate. I was it, about to say, I'm like, I'm... This, This is not the first battle of the revolution. No. Okay. You said that was going to happen a few years down the road. Yes. And actually, this is is a part of what's called Lord Dunmore's War, which is part of Virginia history, but it has nothing to do with the revolution, and that's just factually inaccurate. Also, it's just an insensitive plaque 
commemorating completely. the riflemen who died, but not the native tribes. No, and um, you, and it sounds like it's a lot bigger of a monument than... That's a plaque near the monument, but let's talk oh, about okay. the monument. Anyway, originally, the dedication ceremony for the 86-foot-tall monument, which is shown here... It's an obelisk. It's an obelisk. For those of you who know had, architectural history. So it had been set history. for July 22nd. Okay. But on the night before the event, the sky erupted with lightning and struck the upper part of the crane that was supposed to put the monument into place. The crane was badly damaged. It took a month to repair. Cool. The monument was finally <laughs> dedicated and stood for 12 years until July 4th, 1921. <gasps> and on that day, another bolt of lightning struck the monument, damaging the capstone and some granite blocks. They were replaced. The monument still t- stands today. So the monument was tied to the plaque. Yes. That's what I thought. I was just confirming. Can so, I see the yeah. pit photo again? So let's talk about who the monument is for. Well, like the plaque, it's a monument to the colonists who died. It's also ugly as hell. However, unlike the plaque, it does note that Chief Cornstalk was wrongfully and brutally murdered three years and one month after the battle. They're making him sound like the enemy and a bad guy on the plaque. 100%. And, I mean, some people might not read past that because what's on the monument might be a little longer of a of a tail, and that plaque is really short, and it's right. like, oh, we'll read this because it's in front of it, and then we'll stand back and look at the obelisk. You're not going to like necessarily get super close and to the, it. And the line about Chief Cornstalk is the last line on that large paragraph, and it just says, wrongfully and brutally murdered. That's, that's basically what it says. That's it. That's <laughs> the only mention. But it's really a monument to the soldiers who died. Sounds like that curse maybe did a little work. So the town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia is located at a perfect site for trade and commerce. However, I need to, I need to look up uh, this on a map. Okay, here's I wanna, I wanna here's like the town. See it. Okay. It's located at the perfect site for trade and commerce. However, it has remained a small town throughout the years hmm. because of its prominent location. Nearly every Ohio River voyager mentioned this settlement in the early days. Some counted its houses and some degraded it. And many offered hypotheses as to why it never seemed to flourish. Among the earliest observers were French navigator General Colette, who wrote in 1796 that the town consisted of only 15 or 20 wretched longhouses inhabited (laughs) by 40 or 50 poor inhabitants. What's the city called again? Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Two years later, Tarleton Bates observed that, quote, a town is laid out but a very few houses, perhaps eight or ten dwellings only. Thomas Ashe reported during an 1806 trip down the Ohio was perhaps the most derogatory of all. (sighs) It contains about 40 houses, frame and log, and has not the aspect of ever being much augmented means built on. Right. The few disconsolate inhabitants who go up and down or lie under trees have a dejected appearance and exhibit the ravage of disease in every feature and the tremor (laughs) of the ague in every step. Burn. I know. In 1807, the famous politician Henry Clay said that Point Pleasant was, quote, a beautiful woman clad in rags. Because he's referring to its geographical location. Right. I just looked it up on Google Maps because just because I wanted to get like a bird's eye view and it's where two rivers meet. So you would think that's why it makes sense for commerce. Right. 
absolutely. Even now, it looks like a very small town. It's it not is, built out at and it all. Has not, it, peaked, it peaked in its population to just 6,100 people. You might find this interesting. Right near there is Chi Cornstalk Wildlife Reserve. Yes. I don't know if that comes up in the story, but... It doesn't. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know that. So in 1845, Henry Howe counted, quote, one Episcopalian and one Presbyterian church, three mercantile stores, one steam flour, one steam sawmill, two tanneries, and about 50 dwellings. He also mentioned that the popular explanation for the lack of development was that the place was cursed for the oh murder my God. of cornstalk yes the reality though is as bad as the myth point pleasant was destroyed several times in the 1800s both by fire and flood in- but the the weather there isn't like crazy right like it's pretty mild weather i mean we're close ish i mean we're I in pennsylvania su- it's relatively so mild. it's not like i mean the fire Fires happened back then because of not knowing or not being able to. It's like put the material they built with material yeah. that w- they. But it's not like California wildfires. Like it's not on the Florida coast where like hurricanes could happen. So it's true for a town to be like destroyed that much and it not Multiple being times. a big city like maybe Chicago, which had a lot of fires that destroyed it. There has to be something else that's causing this. Well, let's talk. Let's talk more about it. So in 1901, construction on the Spencer Hotel was completed. It was elaborately furnished, and once included a bank, a billiard mm-hmm. parlor, dry goods store. And, of course, a bar and restaurant. Of course. It had a back room where patrons could partake in gambling and prostitution. Fun. The Low Hotel still stands today and is considered one of the most haunted places in the United States. Oh, I'm looking at a photo of it now. Why was it called the Low Hotel? They changed the name from the Spencer to the Low. Oh, okay. I thought you maybe meant like... L-O-W-E. Oh, okay. Got it, got it, got it. Interesting. Yeah, it's right on the water. Mm-hmm. So that happened in 1901, and it's a haunted hotel, and it's still I there. Love, I I know that it's like not always real, but I watch like people hunting for ghosts on YouTube and stuff. I just find like I need to look up a video about that hotel and see if anyone I follow has done hunting there. So let's let's keep talking. In December of 1907, the worst coal mine disaster in American history took place in nearby Monanga, mm-hmm. West Virginia. 362 miners were killed after a sudden and huge explosion in mine six, followed by another in mine eight. Inside the mine, the timbers supporting the roof were blown down, which caused further problems as the roof collapsed. Right. An official cause of the explosion was never determined. But I mean, you're in a coal mine. There's so many things that could happen and go wrong down there. You're showing me a plaque. If you uh, have listened to past episodes, I read in episode 20, so I can read. On the 6th of December, 1907, 361 coal miners, many of them from countries far across the sea, perished under these hills in the worst mining disaster of our nation. The four who escaped died of injuries. So did they get any sort of quotes or information from the four? I guess just how it happened, but... Obviously not the cause. They if you're not know. right it was by a it, sudden you mine explosion. Know. They think it was caused by gas pocket or something. They didn't have a canary in there. But in 1937, that sucks. the Ohio River flooded and covered 90% of Point Pleasant. Oh, man. And another devastating flood happened in 1945. So I guess, yeah, like, I mean, you're not on the coast of Florida, but you are on the banks of a river. So you are, it but could happen. That doesn't explain everything because in 1944, the Appalachians tornado outbreak happened. 
previously believed to be immune to tornadoes, hmm. the area had never experienced tornadoes. Is it like surrounded by tornadoes. mountains or something? It's all mountainous. Right. So I grew up in a town that we were basically in a valley. So like any bad weather was blocked by the mountains. So I, I totally understand what they're saying. It's like because of right. the mountains. Right. It, this is a very mountainous area. Well, in 1944, an F4 tornado swept wow. through the state, killing at least a dozen people near the town of Point Pleasant. 104 people were killed in the state of West Virginia. Wow. The outbreak still remains the deadliest tornado outbreak ever to hit the state of West Virginia and the only F4 tornado ever recorded in the state. What's the scale of tornadoes? Does it just go up to five? Yes. To have never experienced a tornado before and then that comes through. I wonder what that experience was like. Like, oh, what do you even, you don't even know what to do. You maybe have never even heard of this before. Some people describe it as like the sound of a train coming. How crazy. It's very odd. But then in 1966, things got interesting. Now they're interesting. Yeah. Two young couples. And we're couples. in the era of planes. So maybe we'll hear some aviation now. <laughs> Two young couples from Point Pleasant told police they saw a large gray creature <gasps> whose eyes glowed red when the car's headlights hit it. Mothman. They described it as a large flying man with 10-foot wings. Mothman. <laughs> no way. That was following their car while they were driving in an area outside of town known as the TNT area, which is the former site of a World War II explosives factory. Oh, shit. Over the next few days, other people reported similar sightings. I think two, I know this story. Two volunteer firemen who saw it said it was a large bird with red eyes. Mothman. Mason County Sheriff George Johnson commented that he believes this, the sightings were due to a large heron. So a large no. bird. A resident named Newell Pat Partridge told the sheriff that when he saw the creature and aimed a flashlight at it, its eyes glowed like bicycle reflectors. He oh, also blamed... like an animal. Yeah. He also blamed buzzing noises and static on his television and the disappearance of his German shepherd on Mothman. Oh, not the puppy. Some people claim Mothman is an alien. Oh, weird. I'd, I've never heard that theory that it's an alien. We always have the like movie interpretation of aliens with like the gray skin and the big eyes, but really aliens could look like anything. Well, here's a photo taken in 2016. No way. From a guy who claims it's Mothman. <gasps> that's going to be posted to Instagram, and that's never a photo seen from this. 2016. Long legs. Yep. There's obviously a head and wings. Very blurry. It's kind of like the photos you would see of like um, Bigfoot. Yeah. That's crazy. But let's talk about something that happened before. Back in 1928, the Silver Bridge was opened. It was the first highway bridge crossing the Ohio River at Point Pleasant. On the night of December 14th, uh -huh. 1967, a flurry of reports came in that people had seen Mothman flying over and around the, the bridge. bridge. Mm -hmm. Then on December 15th, 1967, the Silver Bridge collapsed under the weight of rush hour traffic, yep. resulting in the death of 46 people. Two of the victims were never found. Although investigators determined that a design flaw was the culprit, we mm -hmm. are once again led to question the curse of cornstalk i've heard the story of this bridge collapsing with just like a because i've heard about mothman before like i knew what you were talking about mothman has become part of american folklore yeah yeah 
But I had no idea this curse was even involved in any sort of way. And I didn't really know that this curse was a thing. I've heard a quote from somebody who was like on the edge of the bridge. Like they were going to drive. They were like waiting to get on the bridge. And they felt like a big... Like a thump. Thump. And put their car in reverse. Backed up. The car in front of them went in. Wow. And if they hadn't backed up, they would have also gone in. Like, it's just, I think it was like a mom and her baby or something. Like, so it was, it's so a the crazy cause was, story. The cause was a, determined to be a metallurgic problem, which basically a, a, a problem when they made the metal. What kind of bridge was it? Was it, it was, like a suspension bridge or? It was a steel bridge. Because I know suspension bridges, they like give and take so that this one did that too okay it, it was it it was designed to take that load but it was designed back in 1928 mm. and didn't collapse until 1967 it wasn't designed to carry the type the of weight cars. that was yeah on, that was on it and so i mean we had cars back then but barely no, not, not like this like right? maybe like two people in your town had a car and, and also, they were lighter weight it was rush hour traffic people were just stopped on the bridge yeah so it wasn't designed to hold like a whole bridge full For of cars while. that weighed way more than the design but anyway Mothman we can't be-, be close to the finish we haven't heard anything about airplanes Mo- and- <laughs> mothman became legend and there's a statue in point pleasant des- no dedicated way. to it yep <laughs> there was a movie in 2002 called the mothman prophecies starring richard Gere. i've heard of that but i've never seen it have you no, I've never seen it. Mothman was also featured in the video game world several times. Oh, in a, interesting. In a game called Fallout 76 and a game currently on Steam called Mothman 1966. Hmm. And there is a Mothman festival each year. I literally went to dinner with somebody the other day who said they were going to be Mothman for Halloween this year. This is the TNT factory where Mothman is said to live. This, These are current pictures. To live. This is where he lives. This is part of the old... TNT factory. Apparently, he lives amongst the TNT. Whatever. What's the scale of that? Like, it's It's a factory, so it it doesn't look big because there's nothing around it. Well, there was lots of things around it, but not anymore. But not anymore. No. So the problem with this TNT factory is it polluted the water. Of course. And there's conspiracy surrounding the creation of Mothman. They say he was created in an accident involving toxic waste and. So like uh, the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But I will say that Mothman has been in Appalachian folklore for a while. A yeah. good long while. Before this. Totally. People called Mothman like a harbinger of disaster. Uh, right. He was around the bridge a lot right the day before, right? The night before it happened. Right. He wasn't seen again for a long time. That was the last time they saw him. Ever. Well, until 2016, right? Right. Because we saw that picture. And that photo that you showed me of what they think is Mothman, it doesn't look like any sort of animal that I know of. And I'm not an, like, I don't know every animal, but it literally looks like almost butterfly wings on a man. Yeah, I agree with that. It it is really, it's very odd. Looks like that. So the whole harbinger of disaster thing Mm -hmm. is kind of part of human folklore. Yeah. So there's something called the Blackbird of Chernobyl, which was a mythical creature reportedly sighted around the Chernobyl plant just before that happened. Really? It's kind of the counterpart to the urban legend of Mothman. I'm just so curious about the whole alien thing because... Some I mean, people I've claim heard... that the Mothman sightings were accompanied by like strange lights in the sky, etc. 
Okay. But maybe to like, they have the ability to see into the future and they're trying to warn us that something bad is about to happen. And right. That, that They don't know English or a real way to show us what's gonna happen. So they just do the best they can. Mary's theory on Harbinger of Disaster. I mean, I'm just like, what could it be? I've never heard the alien <laughs> theory, but I have heard like I've heard people who say they claim to have heard him and it's just like screeching noises. So they obviously can't speak English. <laughs> Maybe like flying around the bridge is like, hey, hey, over here. This is bad. <laughs> this is bad. Don't go here. Scare people away. I don't right. know. I'm not exactly sure. But are you ready to talk about airplanes? I mean, I'm having a pretty good time, but we are on Inside the <laughs> Aluminum Tube. Okay. The Aviation History Podcast. Exactly. So, the company that would become Piedmont Airlines was okay. founded in 1940 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, when the founder purchased Camel City Flying Service <laughs> and changed its name to Piedmont Aviation. Yeah, why would you want to name a flying service Camel? They're slow. Camel City. I'm not sure. That's a little weird. They last a long time. I don't. I guess because camels would bring you across the desert, and we can bring you across the world. I don't get Camel City though. But anyway, oh. Piedmont originally was operated as an airplane repair shop and training for pilots. But in 1944, the owner filed for an application to run a passenger flight service, and after a few years of legal battles. They flew their first flight from Wilmington, North Carolina to Cincinnati, Ohio in February of 1948. Why would they have to do legal battles? Well, at the time, air, airlines were all regulated. So there were there was already an airline that, For that existed area. in that area. So oh, okay. he had to go through legal challenges to hmm. get the airline to be able to run passenger service. Got it. And the airline lived but not very well until deregulation happened okay and after deregulation in the late 1970s the airline grew so rapidly it expanded their passenger miles by 900 percent in just one year shit so they went from yeah they went from like one to like a hundred in a second they opened a new hub in charlotte North Carolina. In 1985, Piedmont bought Empire Airlines, which was based in Utica, New York. They opened more hubs and added jets. They started nonstop service to the West Coast in 1984 using Boeing 727s. They even bought Boeing 767-200s, which is a wide body. Are 27s still in use today? They are not. I didn't think so. Uh, 727s fell out of use around the year 2000. And the last ones were flying in 2010. Probably because they still, were like loud. And they're not, too loud. Yeah. There's still f- a few flying, but they're not common at all. But this company even bought Boeing 767-200s. That's a wide body. Right. They flew nonstop service from Charlotte to London Gatwick Airport. And that started in 1987. What's London? Where is that? London, London Gatwick? That's a different air. That's a different airport. London I, I has know. several airports. Oh, oh. I thought you were saying like London's the city Gatwick oh, is. Oh, no. Gatwick is probably okay. the area that London Gatwick like is in. Like we have London Heathrow, London Gatwick. Yes, and we Got also it. have London Stansted, and you don't, hurry about, you don't hear about that very much. This is the first I'm hearing of it. There you go. That's because that's where corporate jets operate in and out of. Got it. Um, I'm the not 76- that fancy, rich, or wanting to hurt the environment. The 767 also <laughs> flew nonstop from Charlotte to Los Angeles, so they used it like a wide body. Okay. 
1989, Piedmont Airlines was absorbed by U.S. Air, and the combination became one of the East Coast's largest airlines. U.S. Air later changed its name to U.S. Airways. They merged with America West in 2007, and then U.S. Airways merged with American Airlines in 2015. Oh, I was like, why haven't I heard of any of these? The Charlotte hub established by Piedmont and maintained by U.S. Airways continues under American Air- Airlines. Yes. So Charlotte that is still an American know. Airlines hub. Piedmont's name and original logo is still in use, and the company operates as a wholly owned subsidiary of American Airlines operating as American Eagle, which is their regional carrier. That's Yes. Their- that's their logo. Feel that's very the original, neutral about the logo. That's the original Piedmont Airlines logo. So you're looking at like a 1940s design. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. For the 1940s. It doesn't seem modern in any way. No. The words are italicized. Oh, yeah, they are. <laughs> and they were like, this makes us look like we go fast. Okay. So you ready to talk about the airplane? Okay. It's called the Fairchild Hiller F-227B. What year are we in at the moment? That's a lot of... Well, I haven't told you the date. Okay, so the say the name of the plane again. The airplane is the Fairchild Hiller F-227B. And as as you know about this podcast, how F-220B. many of you... F-220B. F-227B. 27B. What does that all mean? This is the history part. Right. It has propellers. It does. It has like two wings on one side, or um, I guess I assume both sides, but like. No, that's actually the flap is out. Oh, okay. Do you it see? just looks kind of like a lower wing from this. It has a flap design called a slotted flap where it pulls a little air from the underside of the yeah. wing and puts it over the top of the flap to maintain a little better airflow. But this is an airplane with the flap out. Right. So normally it would be clean. Because it looks like they're landing unless the landing gear just stays down all the time. The landing gear does not stay down all the time, and this aircraft is in a landing configuration. It's a very interesting looking plane. Like, it's very fat on the back. I don't know a better way to put that. Like, normally, it's almost a lot of Oh, it's like tapered, but yeah, I understand. It's still pretty. It gets wider in the back. And how big, like, is this for people? Is this for stuff? Yeah, so this was originally called the Fokker F-27. It was designed in 1950. It was originally designed as a turboprop with just 32 seats. With the aid of the Dutch government funding it, it flew in 1955. In the late 1950s, Fokker signed an agreement that allowed a company in the United States called Fairchild to build the F-27. Hence the two names. Yep. And the U.S. called it the F-27 Friendship. The Fairchild F-27 Friendship. Fairchild subsequently manufactured a larger stretched version of the F-27, being called the Fairchild Hiller FH-227, which is the one we're talking about. Right. They increased the seating to 56. Okay, so that one that we looked at holds 56. Holds 56. They added a larger cargo area, which actually sits kind of oddly between the cockpit and the passenger compartment. That is odd. It's a little different, right? But I did see that it looked like the door to board the plane was on the back. In the back. Yes, it is. Which is interesting. So that's the version we're talking about today. It was operated by a lot of U.S. carriers in what we would consider the turboprop age. So between 1960 and about 1985 to 1990. Uh, Looking at that photo, it looks like it's from... Somewhere around then. Right. So it was operated by carriers like Delta, a company 
called Mohawk Airlines. I've heard of Mohawk. Have you talked about them before? No, we've never talked about Mohawk, but I will tell you that. Maybe you have personally. On F is... For F- family. F is for family. That's where I... <laughs> so he worked for Mohican Airlines. Yeah. Oh, and that's oh, okay. A, that is a direct reference to, to Mo- Mohawk. Mohawk. That's yeah. probably where I've heard of it because you've told me that when we were talking about that show because we were both fans of that show while it was... Right, running. right. It's over now, but I mean, it's, that's a great show. Yeah. But now anyway. Gotta, now I know what I'm watching later. So it was operated by Delta, Mohawk Airlines, Northeast Airlines, Ozark Airlines, and Ween Air Alaska. I don't, these are companies that are probably out of business. I didn't do any research into them. We know Delta's still in business. Yes. We know that the company that we're talking about today, Piedmont, it became ultimately American Airlines. Right. So, you know, airlines tend to evolve. Right. I mean, recently we've seen a few airlines get absorbed or bought out. Yes. So it's an ever-changing industry. So over its production, 581 F-27s were built. Of those, Fairchild built 128 F-27s Mm -hmm. and 78 FH-227s, which is what we're talking about today. Right. Production ended in... And the F is for friendship. Yeah, friendship. It's just as silly. (laughs) like we're the nice plane production ended in 1987 okay the f20 because like that's kind of when turboprops were going kind of going out yeah the f27 was definitely a commercial success but it has faded into aviation history i cannot find a single reference of a Fokker f27 or a fairchild f27 flying today the last reference i found was in 2010 what was it there was a Huh? What was it used for in 2010? So it was being used by like some government's okay. military, but there was only one <laughs> in 2010. So that's uh, that it kind of like I said has faded into aviation history. I do know pilots who flew the Fokker F27. Yeah. I've talked to them, some older some older they uh, think of it? people. How was it to fly? They said it was great. Any questions? I mean, I know certain planes like you'll say sometimes how people were like love to fly that plane it was quiet it right. was smooth then other times people are like hate this plane so it sounds like it was a decent plane yeah i mean it was in production from 19 i mean it was everyone's friend it was the friendship <laughs> it was in production from 1955 to 1987 it was definitely a commercial success and because i was going to act ask actually because you mentioned how many were made if that was a lot that's kind of a lot actually yeah yeah are you ready for the date? I'm so ready. August 10th, 1968. Okay. So just a year after Mothman. Right. Piedmont Flight 230, the the Fairchild-Hiller Friendship 227, B. <laughs> B. Right. What's the B for? <laughs> I don't even know. I think it's a B model. Who knows? Ugh. They departed Cincinnati just after 8 a.m. en route to Charleston, West Virginia. About how long would that flight be? About a little less than an hour. Okay. About 9 a.m., Piedmont 230 began a localizer approach. So that means it's a horizontal path to find the airport, but no vertical guidance. I think I need a little more explanation. Okay. So it it tells you, hey, fly this path. Yeah. And then it gives you, when you get to this point, descend to this altitude. When you get to this point, descend to this altitude. Got it. So you would just kind of go down. It wouldn't keep. It wouldn't take you as low as what we call a precision approach, mm-hmm. but it would get you down so you could potentially see the airport and into the landing position. And that was called a what? A localizer. Okay. 
So it's going to point you at the runway, but it's not going to give you like a slope. It's not going to give you a vertical like path. It's almost gonna kinda, like stair steps. Down. Yes, you're going to go down and you're okay, just going to fly level it. for a while until you would see the runway. Okay, and then what is the other the idea. version called? The other version is called an precision. You said a precision approach, an ILS. Okay. The Piedmont 230 began a localizer approach, which we just talked about, to runway 23 at Charleston, Kanawha County Airport. There's okay. that name again, the Kanawha River, right? And um, was this a big airport or smaller? It's not very big. It's, it services Charleston, West Virginia. Okay. So it's not very big. Weather at the time was patchy fog. Visibility was reduced, but when you were outside of the foggy area, it was still good. And it's not as bad when you're not going to try and land on the side of a cliff like in your last episode. This runway actually kind of does sit a bit on a plateau. Oh, so really? It kind, of, it kind of comes up on the ends and down on the other end. So okay. there is a level of like A little more difficulty. I don't know if it's more difficult, but it, it it is kind of situated on a mesa. Yeah, but it's not like the last episode where you no, have to have it's like not specific sloped. training. No. You're going to fall off a cliff if you don't. So visibility was reduced, but still good. The tower reported one and a half miles in patchy fog with a bit of fog off the approach end of the runway, but otherwise it was clear, and that was reported by the tower. Two pilots from Charleston were in their private aircraft, so they were flying a little airplane, Mm -hmm. waiting for Piedmont 230 to land before they could take Take off. off. Right. So they were very aware of what the weather was. Five minutes before 9 a.m., the pilots reported to the tower that they were having trouble seeing the runway lights. So Mm. here, you and I, were going to read the transcript. Yeah. And you're going to be the captain. Okay. And I'm going to be the FO. But you're a captain. But you're going to read the captain, and I'm going to read the FO, and I'm also going to read the tower. Okay. Got it. So there you go. So I'm PIC. Yeah. And you remember, you read in episode 20... And, yes. and I know you can read, so I we're gonna read. so we're gonna do it again. Okay. So you start with P I C. Ask him, John, ask him if he's got his lights turned all the way up. And the first officer says, Have you got the lights turned all the way up? And the tower replies, Sure do. Uh a little fog off the end and it's wide open after you get by that. It's more than a mile and a half here on the runway. Fuel trim? I'm going to hold this altitude. I got the lights in sight. Down low. Got it? Insight, thank you. Everything's good. Landing flaps? I got the chart right here. We're we're liable to lose it. Got the charts there? Yeah, boy. The FO then says, watch it. Right prior to that, we have the sound of power reduction, and then we have a sound of power increase just Mm. two seconds later. Then the FO calls out, watch it. The sound of like the power going down and then going up. The yeah. FO's like, you're getting out of our range. Like, watch what you're doing. Like, maybe that's why he's saying, watch it. Maybe. The plane began a sun- sudden descent, and it started clipping the treetops at about 360 feet or 100 meters from the runway threshold. I think that's when he says, watch it. Because he hit some trees. Yeah. The aircraft then strikes the hillside about 250 feet (gasps) short of the runway and pointing about five degrees nose down. That all happened so fast. In literally two seconds. Literally two seconds. Piedmont 230 continued up the hill and on to the airport, coming to rest 50 feet or 15 meters from the right edge of the start of the runway. Although there was patchy fog at the time, visual conditions existed outside of that fog area. Wow. So... How far away were they when 
they started hitting trees. Do do you know? I mean, were they like? Yes. It sounds like they were within seconds. Like if they had just waited a few more seconds. Hundred meters, three hundred and sixty feet. Which in a plane goes by like that. That is a couple seconds less. So probably they were less. Yeah. Moments off. Moments. <sighs> Once the plane stopped. The fire started. No. The two private pilots had been waiting for Piedmont 230 to land before they took off, and they saw the whole thing happen. They leapt from the aircraft and ran to the passengers who had been thrown clear. (gasps) Quote, they helped them in any way they could, dragging them and carrying them from the flames. Thrown clear because the plane had broken apart? Yeah. Yep. Most of the victims were trapped inside the wreckage. Right, because you're landing, so you probably have your seatbelt on. and It just crushes, it, too. Yeah. Would it be those seatbelts, like an episode I listened to recently where it was like, now we have the metal-to-metal contact where it clips off, and before it used to be like a belt through loops, right? Oh, that's right. It was a belt through loops. So it's a lot harder to get out. This, this probably would have been belt through loops. <sighs> Most of the victims were trapped inside. The West Virginia Air National Guard is actually based there at Charleston Airport, and they scrambled fire trucks and quickly put out the flames. I mean, that's lightly convenient. I mean, a little silver lining to this horror. Within minutes of the accident, about 100 emergency vehicles rushed to the scene. The airport was closed, and police blocked off roads leading to the airport. Charleston Memorial Hospital reported just three people admitted there, two in critical condition. How many, was it a full plane? Charleston General Hospital spokesman said, quote, we got two alive. That's all I can tell you. The survivors were among those who were thrown clear of the wreckage on impact. The pilots of the small plane corroborated that some people were thrown clear, saying four or six people were thrown clear of the the wreckage and were helped away. Thus, if they were thrown, like you'd get like impact injuries from that, but maybe not crushed by metal, yeah. burnt, or smoke inhalation. There were three crew members on the aircraft at the time, one flight attendant, two pilots, and 34 passengers. 32 of the passengers and all three crew members were killed. Two people survived. <sighs> wow. And those two people were the two people that went, went and were in critical condition at the Charleston Hospital. But they survived their injuries? Just two. Yeah. Wow. You're showing me a picture of the... The crash right now, which will be on your Instagram, I assume. Yes. I mean, it's just a tale. That's all that seems to be left. Although I will say this is somewhat after the accident, because if you look up there in the corner, you can kind of see the crane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's a lot of bits of metal around. So what happened? I want to know. Well, the official probable cause was, quote, an unrecognized loss of altitude orientation during the final portion of an approach into shallow, dense fog. What's really strange about it is the people at the end of the runway saw the airplane clip the trees. Mm-hmm. The pilots saw the runway and reported it. Yeah. The pilots on the ground. Well, both. And the pilots, when we read the transcript. They, they obviously. He said, you knew. got it. And the guy said, yeah, boy. And he said, watch it. And then he said, watch it. And that's probably why, like, the sound of the engine decreasing because they were going to land. The sound of the engine increasing because he realized he's about to hit trees. Too low. Is it just kind of like a possibility at all that if they had pressed more on the increasing of the engine, could he have gotten out of it That's a and saved it? Or was really it going to happen no matter it's what? It's a really great question. I think that by the time he was that low and maybe clipped the trees, the aircraft was damaged. Yeah. However, 
I can't say. And this is what kind of strikes me as strange with this whole incident is that they had the airport in sight. They mm-hmm. said it on the CVR and we heard it. The pilots on the ground saw the airplane and then we have this seemingly random loss of control and hit some trees. I guess that we're supposed to believe that this is a pretty simple accident where they just got too low. And right. I, that makes sense, but it doesn't really make sense that they saw the runway and... It didn't seem like they were distracted. It didn't seem like they were distracted. It seemed like they had everything in sight. Neither of them says, hey, you're too low. Where are we in altitude? Right. Like, I can't see. There's no alarm prior to the first officer just saying, watch it. Yeah. That's that's the only thing we have. It, I don't know. It's tragic, but it, this kind of thing happens. They clip trees. And that probably maybe was the point of no return. Yes. Because if it, if it damaged the plane in any way, like maybe the, the flaps. And also think if he clips trees, it, that may have gone into a prop or something. So putting oh, that power point. forward may not have been very helpful. No. The counterpoint to this is that these pilots were very familiar with the airport. They had lots of time in the airplane. It just seems really random I, and That's instant. what I was going to say. It's really random. I will say they, they probably had plenty of experience. The captain, for sure. We only read part of the transcript, but if you go back and you read a little bit more of the of the cockpit voice recorder. The captain is actually talking to the first officer about what he's doing. And he's talking about, there's lots of valleys around here. I do this. This is my technique. I do this. So he's actually talk, discussing with the first officer, how do I fly in this environment? Hmm. How do I fly in this area? How do I fly in this region? So he clearly is familiar with the region. Right. I just, it sticks with me because it's so random. Even though they didn't seem distracted in any way, there's no real good cause. Right. The probable cause was they lost control. They yeah. got too low. Just It just doesn't sit well with me. One of my favorite episodes of yours was the one that's over the Florida Everglades. Eastern 401. And those guys were distracted. They were very distracted. And and we see this. We typically see like a level of distraction. Um, episode one, you see a level of disorientation where they're just not prepared. Right. They're not prepared. You know, they're distracted. You've got all these other things going on. They're, they're in... Um, in the ALM crash, ALM mm-hmm. 980, mm-hmm. they're running out of gas. Yeah. So there's like more pressure. Right. In this case, they'd flown for 45 minutes. They're, they're not landing, tired. They're not tired. It's they're the landing at the beginning of their day, I assume, because it is. you it's said the it was nine of their in the morning. Day. Yep. It's not like maybe they could have done like an overnight or something, but I don't even know if red no, eyes they were didn't. a thing. They then. flew from, it definitely were, but they flew from Cincinnati and this was their first stop. Yeah. So 45 they minutes. It just doesn't make any sense it to doesn't. me. It seems very random. So anyway, I'm not going to attribute it to Mothman or anything, but it's another random tragedy that fits the narrative of the curse. Yeah. I'm just going to say, that's. we'll let the listeners decide about that. But So could this happen now? Unfortunately, I have to say, absolutely it could right, happen because now. Because there wasn't a real cause that you can learn from, grow from, Teach right. people, change the technology. It there's was ch- nothing. There's really nothing. It was just a sudden loss of control, which, again, that there's not really a solution for this. Right. The only thing I can really think of is, like, you know when you kind of go on autopilot sometimes, like you're driving. Oh, yeah, a, that's true. A way you've always driven, and you're like, I'm on this road to my house, but I want to stop 
at the corner store or the grocery store that's like on the way there. And then you but end you up go, at your house. You end up at your house because you're on right. autopilot. Like maybe they were on autopilot, but like so in the it airplane didn't world, we call, so in the airplane world, we call that complacency, and that yeah. could be a cause is that you obviously have a captain who's flying the airplane who knows the area and the captain was the one flying yeah and he's flying and so he knows the area mm-hmm. and he's talking to the first officer about, about how about well the area. he knows the area and how yeah and so good he is at flying probably he's been here a million times and He's like, no, I got it. It's fine. Yeah, because I know this so well. I'm not going to pay as much attention to my outside surroundings. He's not paying attention. He got his. He let, definitely let his altitude get too low. That that that's just hands down. The airplane got too low because it yeah. wouldn't have hit trees had it not gotten too low. Right. I don't want to belabor the point. I just want to say, it just strikes me as something that's really just random and mm-hmm. almost instant. I mean it. Yeah. We went from a stable airplane to a crash Gosh. in three seconds. That's crazy. Three seconds. Yeah. It does like, I mean, if people believe in miracles, there could be something said to the opposite of that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Whether it was like the curse or if it was just the fact that so many innocent women and children were slaughtered near there. There was some sort of maybe, I don't want to sound like woo-woo, but like bad energy. I don't think either of us is really qualified to talk about how a curse works, but it's No, just I'm not saying I, I mean, am in I know, any way. I'm just saying this one just stuck with me because it was so weird. Yeah. Just very out of place. Weird. Just very, and like I said, happened over three seconds. Mm-hmm. So that's the end of part one. That sounds like the end of the whole thing. No. There's more? There's a part two after this. Do you have it ready now? Can I, Or do I have to wait? <laughs> you have to wait. I don't want to wait. <laughs> I mean, at least like I feel like you're not leaving me like with people in a plane in the air. No, I'm not. So there's that. There's more that maybe happens to do with this curse. You're going to have to wait and find out. I don't want to wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, I Okay, so I don't necessarily have a commentary about the technology. I We do this kind of approach still. Yeah. We still do this kind of approach in airplanes that we fly. So this is not like we really haven't progressed as far as airplane technology kind of. Right. That kind of approach, this kind of weather that this is a constant. We still do this. This is very um common for us. And could it happen again? Absolutely it could happen again and it has happened where yeah. we have a sudden loss of control, but Typically, that sudden loss of control is accompanied by bad decision making, some orientation loss, some distractions, mm-hmm. some kind of pressure, some kind of obvious like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Like, uh, you know, some dumb bro shit. Yeah. Th- this is just not that. Yeah. But what are your thoughts? Th- I mean, that's that's what I think. I just think like I was I think the the if we're going to go like logical reason, I think it would be the pilot going on autopilot, not to be funny. So you but, go, you're you're subscribing to complacency. 
Yeah, because there's altimeters, right? That's the right term, word. That yep. that would be in that plane. I mean, that's yes. one of the most basic original things that they put in planes. Yes. That was in our l- glider that didn't have an engine. Yes. That's in this plane too. He has two of them. He, he may even have three. He probably has two and a standby. So I feel like that is enough evidence to say that he was not paying attention to his surroundings in general. It's just strange to have both pilots not paying attention to their surroundings and and nobody raises any questions and they're just I mean maybe they're both complacent think they know what they're doing maybe right. they've both been here a million yeah, times yeah I'm not and necessarily that's kinda... blaming the guy flying because there's two people in the cockpit for a reason yeah I agree with all those things I just don't know what happened honestly I don't think we'll ever know we will never know hmm. Okay, anyway. I can't believe there's a part two. There's a part two. We're going to wrap this up right now. I will have the references and the resources that I used at the end of part two. Okay, cool. That's that. Well, thank you for having me back. I've been itching to be back on. You should get that treated. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, you just did it for me. So There you go. Thank you, doctor. (laughs) Add that to your... uh, My qualifications. Your qualifications, yes. Doctor, captain. Or Captain Doctor. Oh, I like them both. Vote on Instagram. What's better? Captain Doctor, Doctor Captain. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you again for having me on. I can't wait to be back for part two. All right. I you. hope we don't have to wait that long. We don't have to wait very long. Good. See, you, see you in part two. See ya. <laughs>